Well, church, I uh, am thankful to be back here, and I just want to say for some of you who do not know, um, this church was so gracious to give my family and myself a, uh, a sabbatical for uh, two uh, and a half months, and then I haven't preached since uh, the end of May, so except for at Creed Camp one time in June. Um, but it is truly a, a, a gift that you guys gave to us to be able to, to get away and to uh, begin to understand, in part, what uh, I'm hoping to, to dive into today. And I just want to say how thankful I am for the pastors here at this church. Um, not only are they dear friends, but just to see how this church has just thrived under their leadership it not only speaks to the grace of God in you, but also in them. And I just love them so much. And it is such a brotherhood to be able to, to walk alongside them. And so, you know, I felt like I told Ben McInnes, I felt a little bit like the overweight guy who jumps into the pool and does the cannonball while everybody has been playing really fine all by themselves. And then I just like ruin everything, you know, just like, Psh, here comes Sean. Um, but how do we work him back into this thing? It's going fine. Um, but it has been uh, great to see how God has been at work. And um, the most common question that I get from many of you who knew I was away for a little bit was, well, did you rest? Did you rest? And I would argue that, yes, I did. I, I found rest, but it just wasn't like what I thought, and it's probably not what you think of. Um, and that's why for these next three weeks we're going to spend some time on the subject of rest, quiet souls and quickened hearts. What is rest? And so unlike uh, sermons in the future, these will have a little bit more of a topical nature. They will come out of the scriptures, but they will also have a little bit of my journey over these past three months. So um, I'm not uh, normally narcissistic um, and am not seeking to promote myself. On the contrary, I'm just hoping that the things that God has done in my life and in the life of my family might really be um, a, a benefit to help you see Christ clearer. So the first step in seeking to understand what rest is, is today's aim and prayer, and that is this, that God would bless us with the gift of repentance, setting us free to find the deep rest of the soul. So that's where we begin, and I want us to read out loud Acts chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And in the verse 20, we will stop with the phrase, the presence of the Lord. So we won't read the whole verse just because that's what we're focusing in on today. But I would like for us to read out loud together Acts 3, 19 and 20 through the phrase, the presence of the Lord. So let's read together and then I will pray for mercy. Repent, therefore, and turn again that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would make our busy hearts still. That we would not be afraid of silence. And we would not be afraid to come to you with everything. Father, I ask that you would be so kind as to show us the dark portions of our hearts. That you would help us to see the areas of disease that have been corroding our arteries for years. 
that you would expose and you would unravel the sin that grips us. Not so that we could see sin, but so that the scales from the eyes could be lifted and we could see Jesus. Father, I pray, help us to see the Savior. It's to that end that we pray. In Christ's name, amen. We want rest so badly. (laughs) I know you do. I know you do. We long for rest. We want to be refreshed. We want to have a freedom from anxiety or fear. We want peace to cover our hearts. We want just a lightness of soul, not a burdened shoulders. We don't want a heaviness. But our circumstances just seem so different. We grow discontent with our hearts. We think that changing places is going to solve the pain of the soul. We change jobs, we change relationships, we change churches. We leave, we leave, we leave trying to get away from something that's deep within our core and not bound up in what's around us. It's not places. If it's not places, it's people. And if it's not people, it's circumstances. And the quest for rest seems to fall through our fingers like trying to hold water. In our hands. And God just laid upon my heart in March or April of this past year that make it your aim for this sabbatical to figure out what rest is and ask yourself why you don't feel like you have it. What in the world is in the way of whatever it is that we're defining as rest? And I've had several people just ask me, well, what have you learned? What have you learned? And I just want to say on the front end, the temptation to be impressive is stifling. I'm not impressive. I'm not. And that wasn't the point. It wasn't the point of sabbatical. And I'm emotional because God has done a work in my heart. I remember Pastor Travis calling me and saying, okay, I know you're coming back in about a week and we're trying to plan for this upcoming family meeting. I just was curious if you had anything that God was really laying upon your heart for the church. And I just texted back and I said, brother, this sabbatical has not been about me trying to fix TCC, but God trying to fix me. Oh, that he would give us rest. What does it mean? Friends, it's a journey. And it begins with just asking the question, when I say rest, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind? You've all got this embedded definition you're longing for. Peace. What comes to mind? Sleep. That's right. And some of you need it, and it's good. Some of you think mountains. Some of you think certain temperatures, some of you think certain activities, some of you think certain relationships. What do you think of? And then if I ask you a second question, because this was my journey on the sabbatical, what is standing in the way of you finding rest? And just write it down. What do you feel like those barriers are to rest? And then I began to dive into the scriptures, because my definition of things given to myself is pretty fickle, and I know that I'm conditioned by my surroundings, and so I just went to the scriptures and began to ask, what does the Bible say about rest? And there's a grouping of words that kind of encapsulates the aim of what rest is. It's these words, rest, Sabbath, refuge, peace, revive, contentment, restoration, and in this text, refreshment. This grouping of words begins to get at what the scripture, what God Almighty means about rest. Because I don't want my definition. I don't want to go after what I want. I want to go after what he wants. What's he saying it is? 
And if you just go through each one of those words, there was just this kind of brief kind of sentence for each one. What is rest in the scriptures? Well, it definitely is a lower activity level. That activity is not as ramped up. There is a sense of stillness. But it was also a calmness of heart because of a confidence in him. What was Sabbath? Sabbath was, and this was unique, and this is what we're going to talk about next week. It was an adjective to describe rest. Commemorated by a day, yes, but it was an expressed confidence that you were doing what God wanted you to do. You were being faithful to love God and to honor Him. And then I dove into the word refuge. What was refuge? And this is when my definitions of rest began to unravel. It was security, safety, protection, and provision, but 99.9% of the time it was used in the context of enemies all around. It was in the context of circumstances being deplorable, people hating people, and yet God was a refuge. He was rest in the midst of the storm. Circumstances didn't change, but He was rest. And then there was peace. When Jesus says, I am your peace. It was this contentment of heart. Then there was revive. It was when peace is broken apart and your heart is a big mess, you plead that God would revive and restore what was once before. That he would give rest where it wasn't. And then there was contentment. A sweet, if you follow Jeremiah Burroughs, he was an old Puritan guy, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, great book. It's a sweet, inward, gracious disposition that trusts that God is wise and that he is a good father ordering all things. And so your heart is content. And then there was restoration. It was the looking forward to an eternal rest. It was the looking forward to when sin will not disrupt the restful soul anymore. You will be in the presence of the living God and you will experience eternal rest as the author of Hebrews describes it. But that eternal rest has broken into the here and now because of Christ. And it is something that we can experience, as this verse says here, Acts 3, 19 and 20, we can experience times of refreshing. Times of refreshing. Times when that eternal future rest breaks into the here and now. And so that's what we want to look at. That's what we want to look at. And this was my pursuit over sabbatical. But I'll never forget I'll never forget sitting at the foot of the mountains, if you put the picture up. This was the view out the back of the house that was given to us for a month. And I remember sitting on the back porch. I probably took 10 or 15 pictures on my phone every morning. It felt new and afresh every morning. And I remember there was nothing on my to-do list that day. I had zero responsibility with the church. Dana had agreed to take the kids, and I was free to do whatever I wanted to do. And I'm sitting at the foot of these mountains, and my heart is anxious. Why? And this is when God, in His kindness, began to teach me a lesson. Teach me a lesson that there is a rest that a vacation cannot solve. No amount of time on the couch, no amount of movie watching or playing music or bike riding or sleep can solve this sense of rest. There is, as one woman calls it, a rest under the rest. A rest of the soul. A rest that is contentment. A rest that no matter whether there is responsibility or deadlines, 
No matter whether people are expecting something of you. No matter whether you feel freedom from responsibility, which is very rare if ever. It's a rest that you can have even when you don't know what's next. And this is when God met me and he taught me this one lesson. Rest is not a place. Rest is a person. Rest is not a place. It's not a condition. It's not a flowing stream. It's not a beautiful mountain view. Those things are gifts. They're wonderful. But they're not rest. The rest under the rest is why we feel so bound up in the heart. And so I remember. I remember being at a Holiday Inn in downtown. I took one night. And my plan was totally different than what I had originally planned. But I spent one night in a hotel just to get away. And to kind of set the trajectory of what I was going to do for the next three months. And this is what this broken man found. I began to come to the end of myself. And I remember kneeling next to the bed in that hotel room. Began to read the book of Acts. And I was just asking God to direct me and guide me and to feed me and instruct me. As George Mueller says, I was meditating on the Word of God, searching as it were into every verse to get blessing out of it, that I might obtain food for my soul, that He might make me happy in Him. And there I was, on my knees in the Holiday Inn, and I read this verse, Repent and turn again. That your sins may be blotted out, that times ever freshing would come from the presence of the Lord. And this is the lesson. I stopped, and it wasn't a major, just aha moment. It wasn't just that, that I learned a bunch of new information, but it was when the information became new to my soul, and I saw this promise. There is an unbreakable bond between repentance and rest. An unbreakable bond between repentance and rest. If there isn't repentance, there will not be rest. I never saw it like my heart saw it. I'd seen that verses, I'd quoted it. But repent. Do you see it there in the passage? Repent, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, and in order that, for the purpose that, times of refreshing would come. Where? As you're in the presence of the living God. And it clicked. And my three months was a journey for refreshment and rest. And I knew that that journey meant it would be a journey of repentance. Why repentance? Because sin disrupts the soul. Sin disrupts the soul. Our anxiety, our greed, our lust, our craving for control, our bitterness that we hold on to, our angry tones... Flippant words that don't seek to build up but only self-protect. Our self-pity that we just wallow in. It disrupts the soul. And you know it as well as I do. You know it as well as I do. How horrible it is to try to hide it. To try to hide it. To act as if we're not as bad as we really are. You're always looking over the shoulder to see if somebody saw you do it. It's miserable. It's miserable. Always thinking about, always trying to figure out, was I discovered? Did anyone see the weakness? And you get nervous and you become conditioned by being nervous. Always 
worrying if you've been discovered. And our sin is built upon lies. The devil tells us lie after lie after lie that it's better for us. Really? No. It's not better for us. Tells us that God is deficient. Tells us that His ways are deficient. And so we sin. We seek our own ways. But friends, sin stands in the way of the refreshed soul. Therefore, it's through repentance that rest comes about. I don't know about you, but for me, when I hear the word repentance, it most of the time carried a negative tone for me. Did it for you? When you hear repentance, you think negative words. You think like, in best terms, it meant I'd screwed up. I'd sinned. I blew it. In my weakest moments, it represented, oh great, I've got to share with God and other people how rotten I am. And I'm going to sit in shame. But this time, kneeling at this bed, having Acts 3 leap off the page, this was completely different. God in His kindness, He gave me an image of Him as Father. And it was like I was running alongside of Him and I had decided to run over here. And He called me back. And I wasn't coming. And he comes to me. And he comes alongside. But he doesn't jerk my arm and he doesn't give me a lecture. He picks me up. And he holds me. And this is what God was speaking into my heart. Was you are walking down some paths that are destructive. And I want you to find rest. And I'm going to take you gently and we're going to walk in a different direction. And I'm going to be holding you and fighting for you, loving you through the whole thing. All of a sudden, repentance wasn't a bad word. It was a necessary path to refreshment. Friends, many times repentance is bad because we don't want to hear those words, you are guilty. Dear friends, every single one of you in here, including myself, I hate to break the news to you, but no matter what you do, no matter who you blame, no matter how you try to couch it, you and I are guilty of sin. Not just a long time ago. We're guilty of sin. We are sinners. The question is not, how can I prove myself not to be guilty? The question is, how do I deal with my guilt and shame? And this is the beauty of the cross. Do you see what the passage says? Repent, turn again, that your sins may be blotted out. That's what the Jews didn't understand. They thought their sin could be taken away by their actions, by their religious duties, and they were blotted out by the work of Christ on the cross. He took that shame. He bore it when we couldn't. And His infinitely broad shoulders took the burden of you are guilty. That burden we could not bear. Reading a book by Richard Sibbs called The Bruised Read, and he said this, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There's more. No matter how much sin you commit, there's more mercy. So turn again to Him. Do not harden your heart. This is a call to repentance. Don't shirk it off. No one else is your biggest problem. You are your biggest problem. I am my biggest problem. And until we own it, we will not see the freedom that is found in having our sins washed by the blood of Jesus. That's where genuine joy comes. I have been forgiven of so much. So much. And so, 
when repentance turned from being a bad word to a word of a journey for rest and a father who loved me. These two words followed me throughout the whole sabbatical. It was expose and uproot. Expose the sin that's in my heart and uproot it. Uproot it. And honestly, I had no clue what that meant. It wasn't like in that moment he laid a list upon me. I really didn't even know what I was supposed to repent of. But I wanted in that moment to say, whatever dark corner exists, shine your light there. Expose it. And then rip it up from the ground. Rip it out of my soul. That I might find refreshment from you. A man named Tim Challey says that, I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon from him, and it said this, It's easy to bring a man to the river of regret, but you cannot make him drink the water of repentance. It's one thing to say, yeah, I'm sorry that happened. I'm sorry these consequences are there. But to deeply want the change of Christ to come over you, for there to be what this passage says, this passage defines repentance for us. It is a turning again. It is a turning to God. It is saying, I want my heart to be completely yours. I have put something in the place of my Savior that I don't want to be there anymore. Repentance. And usually, in my heart, repentance comes in two major ways. One is Either right before I'm about to sin or right after I've sinned, there's this, this punch in the gut. Have you ever felt that? If you have the Spirit of God in you, you've felt that. You have. It is, I shouldn't have done that. This is not good. It is this, it's this, ugh. But the other ways that God teaches me repentance is just by spending time with Him. And as I'm in a relationship with him, there will be times when he just says, bing, that right there, that right there. And so what I began to learn was repentance was not just a one-time event. It was not a, oh, here it is, done. The reason I prayed God expose and uproot, and it actually turned into expose and unravel was because I wanted God to show me where these areas were throughout my life. So he gave me this list of things that I really felt like God was pressing upon my heart to repent of, and I just kept asking him, show me where it is in my relationships. And I would be talking to Dana, and all of a sudden, boom, there it was. I saw it. I would be over here doing some activity with the kids, and boom, there it was. I saw it. And there was one lesson that God uniquely taught me. There are many more that I will talk about later, but God showed me one of the areas that rose to the top in my heart was the sin of busyness. Now I know some, your struggle is with slothfulness. For some of you, your struggle is laziness. It's not being intentional. It's pursuing comfort and sitting around. I understand that. For some of you, it's the struggle to want to work. But in our culture, in our world, we suffer from busy calendars, busy days, busy weeks, busy years, busy minds, busy hearts. And the ways that I began to see it expressing itself in me is I had to be doing something. I couldn't just sit. Why was that? Why did I have to be doing something? I had to check off a list. I began to see that tasks had risen to even greater priority than people. For me, accomplishment was huge. 
If I wasn't getting projects done while I was at home, I felt like a bum. Busyness was my identity. And I began to see how my busyness was even affecting this church. And I needed to repent. I needed to repent. And here's why. I read a quote that will forever change me. I pray it does anyway. It's by John Calvin and he said this. We do not calmly hear God speaking to us when we seem to ourselves to be very wise. I, I felt like I was very wise. But by our haste, put the word busyness, interrupt Him when addressing us. And doubtless, no one can be a true disciple of God except he hears God in silence. What struck me was this. John chapter 10 verse 3 says this crystal clear. It says, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Do you know what that means? Our God speaks. He's given us his word and he's talking to us. He loves us. He's communicating with us. And you want to know something else? We will hear him. Or this promise means nothing. What's the promise say? The sheep hear his voice. And he's talking to them. He calls them by name. And he leads them out. But my busyness was like an argument with my wife. Have you ever been in an argument with somebody before? When you're thinking so much about what you want to say, you actually don't let them finish their sentence and you interrupt them? Have you ever done that? Well, I haven't, but I know that some of you probably have. (laughs) It was sadly clear to me. My busyness was interrupting God's voice. A God who says, I want to talk to you. And I was interrupting him. And then I read this book called The Contemplative Pastor by Eugene Peterson. And he began to talk about his own journey. And you've ever heard someone talk about their own journey and it like smacks you upside the head. Here it was. The title of the chapter was The Unbusy Pastor. And he talked about when people come up to him and say, I know you're a busy pastor. And here's what he said. I'm not arguing the accuracy of the adjective. I am, though, contesting the way it's used to flatter and express sympathy. You following that? You're so busy. That can be a flattering thing. You get a sense of esteem in the heart. I am busy. And I'm something because of it. Or it's a sense of pity. And pity is a drug. It's like heroin. It just grips you and you want more of it. The poor man, we say. He's so devoted to his flock. The work is endless. And he sacrifices himself so unstintingly. The word busy is the symptom not of commitment but of betrayal. It is not devotion, but defection. The adjective busy set as a modifier to the pastor should sound to our ears like adulterous to the characterize the wife or embezzling to characterize the banker. It is an outrageous scandal, a blasphemous affront. Hillary of Tours diagnosed our pastoral busyness as A blasphemous anxiety to do God's work for him. He said of his own soul, why was he busy? He said, I'm busy because I'm vain. 
The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, the heavy demands on time are proof to myself and to all who notice that I am important. And I want to stand before you and say, I am not important. I repent of trying to be important, even in the eyes of the best person, because I am important to my Savior, and the cross proves it, and that's enough. I wanted to appear important or significant. He also wrote, I'm busy because I'm lazy. I don't want to tell people no. I don't want to do the hard work of prioritization or setting values or directing or setting goals and living by them. I'm terrified of people. And then this sentence. How can I lead people into the quiet place beside the still waters if I am in perpetual motion? Oh God, may I repent. I began to see that stillness and quietness in the presence of the Lord was where refreshment came from. And I began to plead with God as George Mueller did, God, every single morning, make my soul happy in you. And so... How in the world can we find the rest under the rest? Some of us say, I spent time with God and I don't have rest. Keller says this, if you want rest, you've got to go to him. But if you think you've gone to him, but you don't have rest, then you really haven't taken hold of what is really yours. What is really yours, friends? When Christ said it is finished, this is what he is saying. When Sean says, I want to be known, The cross says something else. The cross says, whatever happens in your future, with all that you dream and hope for, I want you to know that getting discovered has already happened to you. Jesus already knows you. He hears your prayers. He delights to know you. My wife wrote this in a frame, and it sits on my desk in there now. It's a quote from a man named Zach Eswine a book that I read called The Imperfect Pastor. It says, Being remembered by Him, that is Jesus, means we no longer fear being forgotten by the world. You're known. You've already been discovered by Christ, and that's enough. When my heart says, I want to prove my worth, And I'm tempted to say that will come by me doing more. The cross says, I have proved your worth. Christ died for you. There is no greater underlined exclamation point that you are worthy than the cross. When I say I want to matter, I must remember I do not matter because of what I accomplish, but because I am his child. I'm in his family. I will inherit the earth. And he has accomplished everything that I need for me. When I want security, there is no greater security than I already have in him being fully for me with an unbreaking bond of love. And if I want to make a difference, I begin to see that difference is not in the amount that I get done. Difference is in being faithful to what Christ has before me. The cross sets me free from busyness and defining my life as needing to be busy. And so, busyness does not mean you are faithless, friends. If you have a full calendar, it does not mean that you're faithless. But it also doesn't mean you're faithful. That was my trap. Doing meant faithful. Many times, instead what I've begun to see was I was a slave to others and my wayward desires. And I was living by my own strength. 
And although busyness doesn't always mean you're faithless, prayerlessness does. Prayerlessness does. It's a pretending that you can handle your own life. And when you begin to let go and you begin to pray more than you do, you begin to acknowledge what is true. You can never do it alone. And it's in this that you find rest. You find rest. Acts 3 says where? Times of refreshing would come. Say it. The presence of the Lord. Psalm 73, 28 is the summary, in my opinion, of this journey for rest, potentially the summary of the Scriptures. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. It is good to be near God. It's good. And when I'm near Him, times of refreshing come from His presence. And God confirmed this for me from one other passage. It was Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15. I want you to see the connection. Isaiah 30, 15 says this. In returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust will be your strength. But you are, were unwilling. He was speaking to the Israelites and he says, if you'll just come back to me. Do you see the connection? Acts 3 says, repent that times of refreshing would come. You see that? Now what does he say here? Return, find rest, and there'll be rescue for the soul. Be quiet. Out of quietness comes trust. That's where you find strength. It's the same message in different words. Return, repent, but they were unwilling. The people of Israel were unwilling to return. May we not be found unwilling today. Returning and repentance brings rest. Quietness fosters trust. This is what God calls of us, is that rest is a letting go, but this quietness, it is a laying aside for a moment our busy care. It is laying it aside and being still before God. This is what He is asking us to do. This is what He was preaching to my heart. My busyness will be conquered through quietness with Him. That's where trust comes, is through quietness. Repent to find rest. Be quiet to find trust, and therefore you'll find strength. Friends, quietness is not just the sitting and doing nothing. Quietness is engaging a person. It is being still before Him, yes, but it is more than that. It is longing and seeking to hear His voice. I want to hear Your voice, O God. That's what it's saying. And why is quietness so hard? Charles Spurgeon said this. (laughs) Quietude some men cannot abide because it reveals their inner poverty. Friends, we are terrified to be still. We're afraid of it. We have grown to fear quiet. And our world only conditions it. We are afraid because when we're quiet, the fear can come back. The doubts can come. Worry and anger can flood the mind. Sadness and other voices. Voices of disappointment. Bitterness can boil up. When we're still and only still, it can be a scary place. But I want you to know this is an invitation to sit still before God and to know this. He promises that His voice is greater than those other voices. And you can hear His voice through the Word, but it will take time for you to be still. Do you know for three months, 
I sat under other people's preaching. And I loved it. I loved it. I know what it's like to be you. I know what it's like to sit and to have your mind wander for a moment and then not be able to pick back up where the guy was. And you're just like, man, it probably was good, but I don't know what he said. Friends, I have heard great sermons. I've listened to many of the ones that these dear brothers here have preached. I've listened to wonderful sermons. I mean, sermons that certain phrases were publishable. Like, there were lines that were just remarkable. There, these sermons were put together well, and my heart was encouraged. But I also know what it was like to leave that room and to get distracted. To get distracted by my kids, to get distracted by a conversation, to get distracted by my cravings for food and by my other desires. And friends, unless I stopped after the sermon was over, sometime later, and I pleaded with God to take what was there and drive it deep in the heart. Unless I had a conversation with my family about it. Unless I asked what was God doing in your heart. It would go away. I have learned and become more convinced of the place of the Sunday sermon. They are indispensable, but they are not sufficient. And without personal time in the Word, they are insufficient. Without applying them through prayer, you will grow stale and tired. And you'll begin to blame many other people for that fatigue. For your own initiative problems, your own motivation issues, your own lack of wisdom, your own lack of comfort, your own lack of rest. But friends, we must be still. And that's nothing I can do for you. Nothing your neighbor can do for you. Quietness breeds trust. And if you struggle with trust, many times it's the busyness of life that's interrupting God. And so I plead with you take some time, get away, turn off the screens. I can't tell you how many times I saw it to stop and pray and there was a text or there was an email ding or there was a news update or there was a sports update or there was a Facebook update or there was an Instagram update. Bah! I want to sling it. No screens, no texting, no social media, just you and your Bible and something to write down with if you've got a scattered mind. And I tell you, something that revolutionized my prayer life was to pray out loud or to write them down. I was so all over the place. But flood your mind with scriptures. Flood your mind with scriptures. Be still before him and watch when you sit and you pray, God changes you in the process. And friends, here's a little tip. After, if you haven't been doing this, if you haven't been sitting still, after about two or three minutes, you will be really restless. Whenever that restless feeling takes over the heart, I plead for you to take five or ten more minutes. Just when that feeling of, I'm done, I'm out, I beg of you to sit a little longer. It has been remarkably that when I sat a little longer before the Lord in His Word and in prayer, that He spoke the loudest and the clearest. And Richard Sibb says this. He used an image of someone sitting there with plaster and trying to make this sculpture and he says don't remove yourself out from under the plaster too quickly or it'll crack he says keep yourself there and he says this keep ourselves under this work until sin be the sourest and christ be the sweetest the lord is speaking and he wants you near to him be still before Him. Repent. Turn again that times of refreshing would come from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray.
Oh God, show us our helplessness. Unravel our self-focus. Help our scattered minds to take away one thing from today. Remove from us the pity of self. Convict us and free us from the demeanor and words of anger. The heart that wants to quit when we should endure. Or the judgment of others that is pervasive in our relationships. And Father, as we grow lower, show us your greatness. Show us that you are with us. Show us that there's more mercy in you than there is sin in me. Give us a longing to come to you and to surrender to you. Lord, may we be exhausted of hiding. And may we want to run to the light. Oh, Father, please, stop us from finding our significance and value in what we do. And may we have a difference, a different definition of what it means to make a difference. To be faithful to you, not in quantity. It's not quantity, it's being before you, the living God. Expose and unravel the sin that's taken root in our hearts that we might prize you above everything. Father, I plead for grace now. As you're praying, we're going to just have some time of stillness. And in this time of stillness and quietness, there are pieces of paper up at the front here and there are pieces of paper at where the Lord's Supper is. There will also be some people up here that if you want to be prayed over, they are happy to pray for you. But if God is speaking to your heart, and I know He is, and there is something that He is convicting you of, I encourage you to write it down on this sheet of paper. Making it your prayer that you would ask Him in this moment to expose it and unravel it uproot it to show you where it is but don't just write the sin on the piece of paper write one promise about who God is for you what he promises to do for you because the emphasis is not on the sin but on the Savior but I want you to know that this week I'm going to pray you don't have to put your name on it unless you want to but I'm I'm gonna pray over every single one of the cards that are left up here at the front And I want it to be a symbol in your heart that, God, I don't want to hide anymore. I want to let go of my tight grip upon my life. And I want to be still before you. And I want you to cleanse me.